Welcome to our sermon podcast here at City of Light Anglican Church. We are a new church in Aurora, Illinois, finding a new day in Jesus. We want to see the light of Jesus rise and shine in our hearts, in our homes, and in our neighborhoods. Thanks for joining us for today's message. Well, it's good to be back with all of you. I was here uh, sometime during the last year. I was trying to remember when that was, and I couldn't remember, but I know that I have a one-year-old now, and so certainly at some point in the last year, because I, I remember him being here as well. Um, well, we're in, uh, we're in Ruth chapter 2, which is an awesome book. I hope, uh, I hope you've taken time to read all the way through it, and if you have a Bible, pull it out. Um, I'll be hopping around there in chapter 2. Uh, so this week was, uh, was the end, the completion of the NBA Finals. Um, and so maybe some of you are excited about that because you're Warriors fans and you saw them put a beat down on the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, but I was, I was rooting for the Cavaliers. I was rooting for LeBron. And it's kind of this weird thing because I'm not really even a huge basketball fan, but I, I wanted to root for the underdog. And it was, it was weird to root for the underdog who is also the best basketball player of his generation and the best basketball player in the world right now, and yet he's on the, the underdog team. Um, but of course, of course they lost because um, you need three superstars to win the NBA Finals, and, and there was just LeBron, basically. And Kevin Love is like half a superstar. But why do, we, why do we love underdog stories? Why are we drawn to these underdog stories? Why do we watch these movies about these underdog sports teams that that accomplish these great things? And I think part of the reason is because underdog stories are about ordinary people who do extraordinary things. Ordinary people who do extraordinary things. And these stories give us hope because most of us feel like pretty ordinary people. We, we wake up, we eat breakfast, we go to work, or we take care of our families. The day goes on, we eat dinner, we rest a little bit, and then we go to sleep, and it all starts over again. Ordinary life, and maybe the, the difference is, you know, we do something special on the weekends, but, but, I mean, let's be honest, none of us are living these crazy lives with uh, weekend jet-setting vacations to the Bahamas. We live ordinary lives. And yet, at the same time, we long that our ordinary stories would be part of something bigger, that life would be about more than just making it from Monday to Tuesday and Tuesday to Wednesday and on and on throughout the week. We long that our our stories would be part of of something bigger, something more important, something lasting. And it doesn't have to be something extraordinary necessarily. We don't need like our names inscribed on a plaque or anything like that. But it is important for us that we feel like we're part of something more than just our day-to-day. And I think that's part of the reason that this book of Ruth appeals to us. Because the book of Ruth is an underdog story. Ruth is this, is this foreigner. She's, she's poor. She's a woman. She's a widow. She is the unlikely hero of this generation, this time of the judges, which is about these, these big, strong men who are defeating these, these other big, strong men. And then yet, yet here Ruth comes... When you read Ruth alongside the book of Judges, you realize Ruth and Boaz, these ordinary people, they are the heroes of the story. If you want to know how you get from the chaos and bloodshed of the time of the Judges 
to the peak of Israel, to the pinnacle with King David. You want to know how you get from there to there? It's through this ordinary woman, this ordinary man, Ruth and Boaz, whose ordinary story gets taken up and gets, gets put into place in God's extraordinary story. And that comes with a, with a promise for you and me, too, that the same thing can happen in our lives, that our ordinary lives can be part of something much bigger than just the day-to-day. That's what we're going to see here in this story. So uh, just a quick recap of Ruth chapter 1. Um, it's, it's, it's very poetic. It's very theatrical. You know, you can see this taking place on a stage. So that the curtains open and tragedy has struck. Okay, there's, there's a famine that's caused this family to move. So this woman, Naomi, moves with her husband to this foreign land, to the land of Moab. They settle in there. They have two sons. Their sons get married. Everything seems to be going all right. And then two more tragedies strike. Her husband dies, and both of her sons die, leaving Naomi and just her two daughters-in-law. And so Naomi quite literally feels cursed by God and says, forget it, I'm going home. So she's, she's going to set off home, and she tells her daughters-in-law, these Moabites, she says, go back to your families. There's no future for you with me. And so one of the daughters does that. She goes back to her family. But the other daughter, Ruth, inexplicably sticks around. And she says to Naomi that in, in good times or bad, I'm with you. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. And basically, until death do us part, I'm going to stick with you, Naomi. And Naomi tries to push her off and says, look, there's no hope for you, Ruth. But Ruth says, stop pressuring me. I'm in this. I'm sticking with you. And so Ruth chapter 1 ends in in these last couple verses where they arrive back in Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown, and the villagers there, they they don't even recognize her. There's something, something about her appearance. They say, is this really Naomi, the one whose name means pleasant one? Naomi says, don't call me that anymore. I am not the pleasant one that you used to know. Call me bitter, because the Lord has made me bitter. And we get this word that it's the harvest season, and then the curtains close. And now Ruth chapter 2, curtains open again. The narrator walks on stage before the other characters, and he says, this little, this little hint for us, the listener, some, some information that even Ruth isn't privy to yet. In verse 1, she said, the narrator says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. <clears throat> and so if you're a Hebrew listener, your mind is now keyed in, because you're like, a man of standing from the same clan as Elimelech, Naomi's husband, This is a guy who could do something about Ruth and Naomi's situation. So you're keyed in, you're listening for that. But as the story goes, Ruth is not thinking about Boaz. She doesn't know Boaz. She doesn't know he's even in the picture. Ruth is thinking about survival. She's thinking, how do I put food on the table for me and my mother-in-law? So that's verse 2. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Why don't you let me go to the fields? Pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. So maybe you know about this, maybe you don't. But in the, in the Hebrew law, there was this law given by God that said to landowners, if you own this big plot of land, don't be too frugal. Don't try to squeeze every last penny 
out of your crops, but leave some behind, intentionally leave some behind on the edges or, or behind the workers, because there are going to be poor among you. There are going to be foreigners among you who have no other way of providing for themselves except by the kindness that you offer. And so Ruth is hoping to find favor. She's hoping to find a landowner that actually follows this law. Maybe hoping to find the favor of just someone who will leave her alone so that she can go about this business as the, as the vulnerable young woman that she is, providing for herself and for Naomi. So Naomi says, this is a good idea. She says, go ahead, my daughter. And in verse 3, so, so Ruth goes out, and she enters a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And that phrase here is really important. As it turned out, it just so happened that, as luck would have it, Ruth ends up in the field belonging to Boaz. Do you have some of those, those incidental moments in your own life that have, have brought you to the place where you are today? Maybe these coincidental moments that were the way that you met your best friend who's been an encouragement to you or, or the way that you went into a certain career path. Maybe coincidental moments that put you on the path towards knowing Jesus. Maybe it was a coincidental moment of you weren't even intending to go to this church. You were trying to go to a different church in Aurora that met in elementary school. You accidentally walked into this one. It was weird, but you liked it well enough that you stuck around. And now you've met like 50 other people just like you ended up here in the same weird way, but you're finding that this church is, is starting to transform your life, that Jesus is transforming your life through this community. It's just one of those as-it-turned-out moments. I think those moments are important for us to identify in our lives, to listen to, and to mark. This is a time where God stepped in and was sovereign in my life and set me on a path, and that was a sign of his goodness and of his love. That's what it is here in the story. As it turned out, Ruth ends up in a field belonging to Boaz. And so, just then, Boaz, as she's out in the field, Boaz arrives from Bethlehem, and he greets his workers. He says, the Lord be with you. And they respond, the Lord bless you. And then he noticed someone out in the field. He notices someone in verse 5. He says to his overseer, who does that young woman belong to? He sees Ruth out there. He doesn't recognize her as, as one of his male servants or one of his female servants. And knowing at the, the culture of the time, he knows that she's vulnerable. That's why he phrases the question in this way. Who does she belong to? Uh, Whose who's interests? Or who, who uh, how am I trying to phrase that? He's trying to say, you know, like who's looking out for her best interest? Is there, does she have a father here? Does she have a husband here? And the overseer replies, She's just the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. See, that wasn't an important part of the story for them, for the villagers. Their, their eyes are on Naomi and this, this terrible tragedy that's befallen her. And it's kind of odd that this foreigner has come back with her, but it, he doesn't even seem to know her name. And he says, you know, she wanted to glean from the field, and, and we let her, and she's been working hard this whole day. So then Boaz, noticing this vulnerable young woman, he goes to her. Verse 8, he says, my daughter, listen to me. He says, don't, don't go and glean in any other field. Don't leave this field. 
Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. And I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. So Boaz is saying, well, if nobody's looking out for her best interests, then I'm going to look out for her best interests. See, he's following the law, but then he's going an extra step and an extra step beyond that. See, the law just says that he needs to leave her be gleaning in his field, but he's going to do more than that. He's going to see her in her vulnerability. He's going to provide for her. He's going to provide protection for her. He's even going to lay favor on her life. That's this, and whenever you're thirsty, he says, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. And apparently this would have been really unique because, I mean, at this time, it's the women who fill the water jars for the men. And it's the foreigners who fill the water for the natives. But here he's saying to this, this foreign widow, I'll provide for you with, with what my men have filled. He's treating her as, as if she has this high place in his household, even though he, he doesn't even know her. I think it's interesting to, to compare this situation to so many other situations that we're hearing about these days, to understand the character of Boaz. Because every week we're hearing more and more of these news reports, of these, these Me Too moments, that are set up just like this, where you have a vulnerable young woman on the one hand, and you have a man of standing, a man with power on the other hand, and he promises favor, he promises grace, things that he can do for her. And then there's this natural question of, well, what's in it for you? What's in it for the man? And Boaz, I mean, he goes above and beyond for Ruth. So he does this here. He, he says, uh, to his men, I mean, no one lay a hand on this woman. He, he puts her in this high place in his own household. Later, he's going to invite Ruth to come eat with him. And even after that, he's going to tell his men to drop some of what they've been carrying so Ruth can pick it up. So that by the end of the day, she's walking home with, with this giant bundle, 30 to 50 pounds of grain. So much grain that when he gets home, Naomi, or when she gets home, Naomi's saying, where in the world did you work today? Who did you work for that you have this huge harvest? So it's only natural that Ruth asks in verse 10, she bows down with her face to the ground. She asks him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Now in our time, we're, we're thinking skeptically and suspiciously, yeah, why has she found such favor? What's in this for Boaz? And you see that the answer isn't any different than what was in it for Ruth when she decided to go with Naomi. There was nothing in it for Ruth. That was, a, that was an act of completely selfless love to go with Naomi. I mean, Naomi was right. There was no hope going with her back to Bethlehem, and yet Ruth goes with her. Look how Boaz re- responds here. He says to Ruth in, in verse 11, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your own father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people that you did not know before. Where other people might have just seen a a foreigner, this woman who happened to come back with Naomi, Boaz sees something far more than that. He sees a woman who's made incredible sacrifices. He's seen a woman who's, who's displayed an incredible amount of love 
something she didn't have to do. And he, and he prays a blessing over her in verse 10. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have taken refuge. This, this beautiful image of, of, these, of these chicks coming under the wings of a mother hen, saying, Ruth, I, I've seen what you've done. I've seen that this was a spiritual act for you to love your mother-in-law in this way. And it's kind of like that phrase, you know, like, greatness recognizes greatness. Great artists and, and painters and chefs and athletes, they recognize greatness when they see it. Only in this case, faithfulness recognizes faithfulness. Boaz looks at Ruth and he sees the deeper story. He sees this faithful love. And because that's the way he lives his own life, he recognizes it in her and he blesses her for it. See, this is, this is the time of the judges. That's what the first verse in this book tells us. That all of these events happen in the time of the judges. And if you read the book of the judges, you realize that it's one bad leader after another. It's this spiral downwards. It's an incredibly depressing book with an incredibly depressing ending. How do we get from this chaos and bloodshed into something redemptive, into something that's like the promises that God has given to his people to bring them into a land, to make them prosperous, to make them a blessing to all the nations? How do we get to that? The answer is through people like Ruth and Boaz. Ordinary people. Ordinary people who reflect God's extraordinary love into their workplaces, and into their homes. Ordinary people who reflect God's extraordinary love. See, Ruth and Boaz, they're a picture of this Hebrew word called hesed. Hesed means something like love, or loyalty, or grace, or favor, or kindness, totally unmerited gifts and offerings of oneself for others. And this is the way that that God represents his own love for his people. Why does he love Israel? Why does he put his favor on them? He just does because he's that kind of God. Why does he love us and put his favor upon our lives? He just does because he's that kind of loving God. And why do Ruth and Boaz do the same in their lives? Because they've come to know and trust this loving God. And now they reflect his love into their homes into their workplaces, into the ordinariness of their lives. And through their ordinary lives, they're not heroic, they're not these great politicians, they're not great, strong, mighty people, they're ordinary people, and yet they're the ones that God uses to give us King David. They're the ones that God uses to even give us King Jesus. Which is why in Matthew's genealogy, at the very beginning of his gospel, story of Jesus' life. He mentions all these men that Jesus descends from, and he mentions a few women, and Ruth is one of them. He says that Jesus is a son of Ruth and Boaz. We get Jesus because of the faithfulness of these two men and women, ordinary people in their time. And so I wonder how you see your ordinary Do you see in your ordinary life that it can be filled with a sense of of meaning and purpose and value, even though you're not doing any extraordinary things? 
maybe this is hard for you. So I, I think about, you know, my high school students in my youth group who are taking classes like calculus when really they want to be artists, right? Or they're, they're taking these science classes when they want to be writers, they want to be lawyers and things like that. And they're saying, why do I have to do all of these things? I feel like I'm just spinning my wheels because I'm not doing what I really want to be doing. Or I think about myself a couple years ago when I was unemployed for about five or six months, which was a terrible feeling to, to think I should be at a point in my life where I have things together, and yet I'm living with my in-laws and I don't have a job but I do have a grad school degree, but that actually doesn't mean much anymore because I'm not getting any grades. I'm just living in my wife's old bedroom. Feeling like I'm, I'm spinning my wheels. Or maybe, maybe you're in a, in a job where it's just, it's just drudgery day after day, or you're in a difficult home situation where it's just, it's just challenging and there doesn't seem to be much fruit coming of it. Do you believe that your ordinary life could be part of this extraordinary story that God is telling, and that it wouldn't require you selling all your possessions, quitting your job, and moving across the world to live in part of that extraordinary story. It would require you just being faithful right where you are, reflecting the love that you've received from the Father. Here are two, two stories just to illustrate this. Maybe you've heard of these, uh, these ministers in the 1700s, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley. So if you don't know, the, the Wesleys, I mean, their, their names show up on these Wesleyan churches now. There's a whole Methodist movement that comes from them. So these thousands of Methodist churches around the world descend from these two guys. And they didn't set out in the 1700s to start a new church. They set out to bring revival to the church that they were in, which was the Church of England. And so through their ministry, thousands of people, and generations after that, millions of people had their hearts awakened to the love of God and his desire to be a part of their lives through the ministry of John and Charles. In fact, Charles wrote 6,000 hymns. Many of the songs that we sing at Christmas time, like Hark the Herald Angels Sing, he wrote. I mean, he's, he's like laid his imprint on the whole English-speaking world. It's an incredible thing. And so you have to ask, like, how did these two brothers become so incredible? Like, what was it like growing up with each other? Did they have any idea that this was going to happen? And so if you read about their story, you read something interesting. You read that this movement, yeah, it had two fathers, John and Charles, but it also had a mother, Susanna. Their mom, Susanna, had 19 children. Only eight of them survived uh, into adulthood. She raised these eight children, and her husband was a pastor, and he was often away, and so she took basically full responsibility for educating her children and also teaching them about the Lord and the goodness of the Lord. Twice in her life, her home burned down. One time, she had to run into the home and save John Wesley in her arms. And yet, as the biographer says, he says, any great thing that the Wesley brothers ever did, you can draw a direct line from that to Susanna's influence in their lives. We don't hear about her name, but she was there. And you don't get the Wesley brothers. You don't get this revival movement, revival movement that we are even taking part of today without Susanna in these ordinary days of raising her children. 
imagine what that's like. Or think about, you know, my own story. I, I wasn't raised in a, in a Christian family. I came to faith right before seventh grade. I was kind of this smart-alecky kid who liked bothering and annoying my teachers, which, John, I'm sure you can imagine, knowing me when I was in college, um, and not much had changed. <laughs> um, but I was this smart-alecky kid, and as it turned out, my parents sent me to this Christian camp that they had heard about. And they weren't sending me there so that I could have any kind of spiritual experience. They just heard that it was a good camp. And so they sent me there for a week. And as it turned out, I had this counselor who had been a counselor there for four years, and this was his last year, and this was the last week of that summer, and he really wanted to make it count. I remember him saying that. His name was Bob. And the whole week long, Bob just was himself in our lives. I was struck by Bob. I wanted to be like Bob. I wanted to have what he had. And so at the end of the week, they tell us to go out on this island and pray, and I'm sure that there was some kind of sermon that was given, and I don't remember any of that. I remember sitting out on that island and, and feeling like a world was, was kind of opening to me, and that the Lord was saying to me, Will, you can know me. The Lord was saying, Will, you can know me if you want to. And that little island, 12, 13 years old, I said, yeah, okay, whatever that means, I want that. And I went back to my cabin, and I didn't tell Bob about any of that. I didn't realize something important was happening in my life. But as I reflect now, and as I reflect the way that, that Bob said, hey, Will, you should be part of a church, and the way that I, I went back and, and into my school, and in seventh grade, I heard about this youth group that, as it turned out, happened to be meeting right down the street from me, and I started going there. And these youth leaders, wonderful people, old and young, people like you started pouring into my life, my life and just loving me and caring for me as this smart-alecky kid. And through their ministry, my life was forever changed. Through their ministry, my family's life is forever changed. My son will grow up in a Christian household. My son will grow up in a healthy house, household, Lord willing. And all of the ministry that I will ever do in my entire life, you can draw a direct line to this 22-year-old Bob who just wanted to love some kids in his cabin. You want to know how ordinary this is? Bob has no idea that I've said his name hundreds of times telling this story. He has no idea the impact that he had on my life in just one week. And all Bob thought he was doing was just reflecting the love that he received from the Father to my life and into these other sixth grade boys' lives. You don't know what God will do with the ordinary in your life. He can do a lot. In fact, he will do a lot. So if you're sitting here this morning thinking about your ordinary life, then have hope. Have hope that as you reflect God's extraordinary love, into the situation right around you, not thinking that you could be doing great things if only your situation was just a little bit different and if you lived somewhere else and if you had more money or married to a different person, but if you just reflect God's love into your ordinary life right where you are, that just like Ruth and Boaz, God can take your story, lift it into the heavens, and make it part of his extraordinary story. And that is a beautiful, beautiful promise for us. So in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Thanks for listening to this podcast from City of Light Anglican Church. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at cityoflightanglican.org. And now, may the light of Jesus scatter the darkness from before your path.